Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast with your host, Evan McElwain. Welcome back to the Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast. I'm Evan McElwain, Bowery Capital's Director of Growth, and this week we are joined by Wendy Gonzalez, CEO of Sama, to talk about convincing prospects to buy versus build. Great to have you on the show, Wendy. Thank you, Evan. I'm pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Wendy, tell us about you, your background, and your current company, Sama. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I always have to double check the number of years, but actually now over 25 years in technology. First 10 years of my career were spent in consulting, so spending a lot of time both selling, strategizing, helping customers define and decide which types of technology to implement within their enterprises. So I focused primarily on the Global 2000. Then I switched over and I kind of put my, from the sales perspective, I became the client. And so I worked at a couple of public companies on the enterprise side, making um, technology decisions and basically running kind of our technology architecture and roadmaps. And then I uh, got the bug to actually build and create something myself. So co-founded an Internet of Things startup with a, a former colleague of mine, and we built a SaaS platform, both selling into a kind of partnership ecosystem as well as direct to clients. Loved the idea of, of working with a disruptive technology. And I was engaged so early on in IoT that it was actually still called M2M. Like, so we're really uh, machine to machine many years ago. And uh, anyhow, I mentioned that because there's a lot of sort of evangelism and discussion over, you know, like, how do you use the internet of things to really help drive your business? And so I got really excited about emerging technologies. And I switched over to Sama in 2015, because I thought the notion of, you know, AI really still kind of in its infancy, was something really, really compelling. And that being part of something very early on, I could really help sort of shape and, and guide our clients through this process. So one other question we like to ask Wendy before we get going on the topic is what is one thing that no one listening to this podcast will know about you? Oh gosh. You know what comes to mind, Evan? I don't know why this is coming to mind, but two things come to mind. One is that I used to DJ and the other one is that I lettered in badminton. And that's actually a sport that you can letter in. That's awesome. (laughs) And were you doing those, you know, like at the same time in your life? (laughs) They were different phases of my life, actually. (laughs) Cool. I've never gotten either of those having hosted a lot of these episodes. So right on. That's awesome. So let's do kind of a quick setup just to set the stage. So Wendy, today we're going to be dissecting the buy versus build dilemma that many companies find themselves in. And we're going to look at it primarily from, you know, a seller's point of view or a CEO's point of view in your case. And really how to help prospects navigate that decision. And of course, where it makes sense, convince them why buying your product or solution is is the best route to go. And so we can chat about the topic broadly and and use Sama as a kind of case study for listeners to learn from. Does that sound all right? Yeah. Cool. So I think this will be a familiar concept for many or most of our listeners, but we try to really make these podcasts approachable for those that don't have as much background context in the space. So just to help set the stage for today, what do we mean when we're talking about build versus buy more broadly? And then I'm also just curious what it means more specifically within the context of Sama. 
Yeah, so build versus buy. So do I choose to build this technology or build this operational function inside my company, putting a whole lot of investment um, into that and having to build a set of expertise? Or do I choose to use a third-party outsourced platform or solution to accomplish that? So that's how I'm interpreting build versus buy. And I gave a little bit of it, admittedly, um, a bit of a long-winded intro because uh, one of the things that I, I, I do kind of bring a perspective to is I've been on every side. Like the services side selling in, the, you know, procurement side, the, you know, PMO side, the buyer side, and, and now kind of back on the um, seller side again. So I, I think there's something really interesting and I'll definitely reflect on some of my, uh, the decision-making I did also when I had my client hat on. But as it relates to kind of sharing a little bit more about Sama and, and kind of uh, using that as a context for build versus buy, at Sama, we provide high accuracy training data to companies who are looking to build and deploy artificial intelligence applications. So if you think about applications like self-driving cars, right, that's a kind of straightforward example of how AI can be used. Before the car can actually learn how to drive, it needs to know how to detect people, pedestrians, cars, you know, drivable spaces, lanes, et cetera. And so what training data is, is training data is the structured labeled data that AI uh, applications need to be trained on. So AI applications are trained to recognize patterns. And if you don't know what a bicycle looks like, you're going to have a hard time as a self-driving car. So that's really what we do. And we support training data across really every kind of industry and application that you can think of. In the case of AI, and we've done, you know, well over at least a couple thousand different sort of training data engagements. But oftentimes when companies are first uh, figuring out how to deploy a technology like artificial intelligence, what they do is they they start by exploring and determining, can I use AI to, you know, for example, create a cashierless store or to build an application that allows you to identify somebody's, you know, identity, right? Like, like Apple Pay or something like that. And so they start with usually the data scientists who are building those applications, they usually start by doing the labeling themselves because they're doing it in small volume, they're trying to figure out, okay, I'm doing all this different A-B testing. Let me do the labeling myself. And so what we find, and this kind of ties back to the buy versus build decision, is that once you get to scale, companies, what they really want their core expertise to be in is in the end AI application, right? So their product is the self-driving car, not necessarily the data that's necessary to train the self-driving car. And so when clients get to a certain level of scale, they want to focus on their own set of expertise, which is really what they believe to be their core competency and differentiator. And they typically want to outsource or do a buy decision you know, versus build to work with a company who's got expertise in this. So they don't have to then go and not only put a lot of resources, which can be more expensive, but they also then don't have to build the expertise or the operational ability or operational capacity to deal with data at large volume. So that's typically what we see in the case of our space. And is there sort of an, an even next evolution of that? And and we'll get into this more just throughout the conversation today, but I'm, I am curious, is there sort of a next level of that with some of your clients? I get the sense that these are large and that same Fortune 2000, Fortune 100 that you've built your whole career working with. Once they get past that, you know, data scientists in Silicon Valley doing the data labeling themselves, realizing, okay, we're starting to get some expertise, some traction. Now we want to do this at scale with way larger volumes of data. Does there then become this next build versus buy decision of, hey, should we build out our own team that maybe doesn't sit in Silicon Valley, that sits somewhere else, and we hire out our own office to, to try to do this sort of in-house? Does that then become that next almost build versus buy dilemma is ensuring them, this is complicated stuff, you really do want to 
have us as your partner to help you through this? Yeah, that's a great, great, great question. So once, yeah, you kind of starting a small volume, it's like, okay, I need to start going into, you know, large volumes. Should I actually go and build something in house and figure out how to scale it? What we find is that nine times out of 10, companies want to do the buy approach versus the build approach. And the reason being is that, is that one is, you know, data science and building models and applications doesn't necessarily mean that running large scale data operations is something that is a skill set that is in-house, right? So there's definitely a very specific set of experience and skills necessary to be able to manage a data pipeline, which companies may not have, even if they do have it, like data science resources, what they prefer to do is they prefer to channel those resources towards what they believe their core competencies and strategic differentiators are. So that's the second component. The third is that I, I was talking to somebody earlier today and I loved the way that they described it. It's like, you have to hold AI's hand. And I thought that was a perfect way to describe it. And what, what this gentleman meant by that is that AI, it's not like you can build it and put it on a shelf. It requires constant care and feeding. Uh, I'll keep with the self-driving car example. If you deploy that self-driving car capability and you do it across California, what do you think will happen to that car when you put it in the United Kingdom where they're driving on a different side of the road? Or in China, as an example, where there's like a 10-lane roundabout, right? It's not going to know how to detect it. So the environment constantly evolves and changes. And so you need to continue to care and feed your AI model. One of the other reasons for, you know, sort of buy versus build is that it's not just that you build that capability once. You have to constantly care and feed and maintain it. And so if you want to take on that kind of operational responsibility, it's going to drain resources and take you away from your core focus of building the end application. It's kind of like a thing about like, can you even imagine now once upon a time, people built their own data centers. Can you imagine anybody going, you know what? I think I want to spend 2 million bucks and build my own data center. Oh yeah, wait, it's not going to be redundant. So let me spend a few more million dollars. No, they're, they're going to go to a cloud computing platform. Right? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good analogy. Like this is sort of the next version of that. You know, you, you don't want to be the specialist of building servers and data centers if you're just trying to launch an application software for XYZ purpose. If you don't want to become the expert of data labeling or of AI annotation to then just go actually put your AI to use in a self-driving car or whatever the application is. I love that analogy. So let's kind of zoom back out a little bit and think about this at a high level. And, and maybe we just start discussing kind of how this build versus buy discussion impacts the sales process. So even at like the beginning of the sales process, when you all are going after prospects, trying to drum up new business, your team is having some of those early prospect conversations is this build versus buy objection something that you're actively trying to draw out during the qualifying process to see how they're thinking about it, see which way they're leaning? Or is it the kind of thing that you really want to avoid bringing up unless they do, just as you don't want to introduce kind of unnecessary objections that then might either be a blocker or could potentially lengthen the sales process? Yeah, actually, we definitely try to surface it because uh, the way that we look at the sales, you know, purchasing process is that people are at different stages of awareness, right? So they're kind of like buying aware, which I would call like the, we know we need this. We know that this is not our core expertise. We want to look to experts in this particular space to go ahead and do it. Then there, but there are, are, are different levels of awareness. So what's really interesting about AI is kind of like, you know, big data or analytics or think of any other, you know, IoT, any other major disruptive technology. It's not like it sits in one industry. It's not just autonomous vehicles, you know, in, in automotive. It's literally in every single industry, right? It's in retail for digital catalog. It's in consumer devices for, you know, consumer internet. And so each industry, what we found is really interesting is at different levels of awareness. So you get to like a super mature industry like automotive where 
you know, people have been working on self-driving cars for several years now. They're going to come in and they're like, okay, we know we need a training data platform, training data solution. We're going to have really specific requirements. You know, these are the things that are going to be important to us, you know, accuracy, cost, speed, et cetera. Whereas you go to consumer packaged goods as an example. And so their counterparts in retail may have a lot of knowledge in this space because they're doing advertising applications, et cetera. But it might be, you know, this CPG company's very first time. And so what we try to do is we try to attune our sales process to the different levels of awareness. The first qualifier is, are you meaningfully investing in AI? If you don't have a head of data scientist or, or you know, a machine learning engineering team, we're probably not going to go and pursue you because that's a lot of heavy lift, you know, for kind of education and awareness. You're almost too early. You're just too early in on that stage. And, you know, there might be partners. So we do have a partner, um, sales partner and kind of channel strategy where right now there are a lot of companies who are earlier on in the adoption curve who are working with consulting firms as an example to kind of figure out like, hey, how do I deploy AI? So that's something where we might let them go through that education process, then say, hey, bring us in. We know when they're actually ready to start an engagement to where they need the building blocks like us right? It's like the cl cloud computing, right? You don't sell cloud computing. They've got to want to build an application, you know, or use an application before they start talking about cloud. Right. You don't just go train to people on the street and say, hey, you know, buy some AWS. Like, you know, I don't know what you want to use it for, but <laughs> right. like about how great cloud computing is. So we, we do go one step beyond like, they need to know that they want to deploy AI in some meaningful way. Then we, you know, we, we dig in and try to understand where are they at in that journey? Do they have data already collected? Do they not have data? It usually, it behooves us to go through a cycle to get people to that level of awareness very quickly, then bring them through a more traditional SaaS, you know, kind of motion, which is okay, bring in, come in for a trial. We can, the education experience, if you will, is really about how we can be an amazing um, partner to work with. Other than like, this is, you know, training data. Right. I mean, you need to be worried about X, Y, and Z and really then spending our, our, our time focusing on how um, people can build the best uh, training data strategy that will allow them to be, be successful in their end application. And thinking about your previous example as well of these self-driving cars, then as you launch from California and expand to the UK, they need a long-term partner if they want to do that over time. And so it sounds like as you all are approaching these engagements, even from the get-go, you are really thinking about, okay, how can we position this as a you know multi-year, really long-term relationship? That's exactly it. Once you choose to deploy AI, once it's in production, the model will degrade unless you refresh it and train it. So I'll use an example. Um, Walmart is a, a customer of ours um, that we can speak about. They've got this amazing digital catalog. Well, their products don't sit still. They're constantly evolving and changing to, you know, to adapt to demand in the market. Well, can you imagine going onto the website and not being able to find something because you left it static? So what's interesting is we spend a lot of time, you know, as we talk about that build versus buy is like, hey, not only do you need to worry about like the R&D and then building it to scale, but you actually have to worry about maintaining it and optimizing it. So the decision that you're making and why we may make a great partner for you is that you got to worry about this entire life cycle. Right. And so that part of education of saying, hey, it doesn't just end here is also part of the process. Yeah. And we'll get into that a little bit more as well later on. So coming back to build versus buy in the kind of early days of the sales process, and you mentioned a lot of it too, just depends on like level of awareness. So if your team's having these conversations and the prospect says, hey, you know, we are really leading towards building ourselves and here's why is the sort of next step then to really try to dig in and diagnose, okay, you know, what's the root cause of why they're thinking about building it themselves or rather is it just a signifier 
that they haven't gone through enough research to really know the real true cost of doing that themselves. How do you toe that line of knowing when you should really be proactive and try to convince them otherwise versus just kind of circling back to that opportunity quarters or months down the road once they've either tried it themselves and failed or, you know, talk to more people and realize, okay, maybe that's not as good of an idea as we thought. I'll give maybe a couple of examples. I mean, I think that, that a lot of times if companies are buying more aware, right, they know they need this, they know the importance, they're doing the research. And if we're having a conversation that is really around the nuances. So we spend a lot of time on accuracy. So the reason why accuracy is so critical in the work that we do is that, you know, basically the less accurate your training data, the less accurate your application. Right. So if you've got 90% accurate training data, your application is going to be like 81% accurate in a surgical device, robot assisted surgical device. You probably don't want it to be like at 80% accuracy. Right. Right. So that is a really important component of what we do. And when we're having conversations about like, Hey, you know, have you considered X, Y, and Z in your, in your quality rubric? Let's, let's talk about, let's talk about your classes, the taxonomy. Let's go through these different business rules and we can engage in that conversation. Then you're like, okay, might need, you know, a little bit more work here. We definitely can explain why accuracy is so important and why you got to worry about it through the whole life cycle. That's a conversation where you want to keep investing, pushing, sharing more knowledge, presenting case studies. There can be the times though to where somebody says, you know, and I'll, I'll give you an example. We were working with this company and they were a very procurement, you know, savvy company. And first thing they says, all right, well, we're going to do, we're going to do a, a, a double Dutch blind auction. So that's basically where you auction off in reverse order to get to the lowest possible price point. And so we're like, okay, first of all, this smells of something that may not be a great fit for us if it's a complete race to the bottom because they may not have the sort of awareness of, you know, how, how important accuracy is the calibration and the certain investments you need to make to be able to to get to that. Right. Like you can't look at price in a vacuum. Exactly. So we, we just said, hey, listen, here's some things that we'd love for you to consider. Let us show you how you build a quality rubric. They're like, oh, sweet. Maybe we should go, you know, like this is this is really great. Let me maybe go update my RFP. But we kind of said like, listen, no problem. We're happy to bow, but you know, here are some things that we think would be great for you to consider. Three months later, right? So we lost, quote unquote, lost or declined the deal. Three months later, they're a customer of ours. They're like, oh, dude, you were totally right. <laughs> they had gone through a little bit of their process, gone through a pilot where they where they didn't get the results they wanted to, and then remembered the conversation said, oh, yeah, yeah, I seem to recall those things being important. It sounds like the main takeaway there as well is so when you're kind of faced with that decision of w- when do you cut it, when do you really dig in your heels and, and try to still convert them to, to buy versus build, a lot of it's just kind of pressure testing and seeing how informed is their current mindset and, and decision about what they think they're going to do. And have they thought about XYZ, whatever those competitive differentiators are of of your company. And oftentimes if they haven't, then that's kind of good food for thought for them that they can that they can think on and potentially come back after they try another solution. And if they have already thought through a lot of these things, then okay, maybe this is more of a lost cause and and we've kind of given our best effort and we move on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. I think pressure testing is exactly the right way to put it. Cause there could be, you know, wow, they're just, they need to discover it or learn kind of for themselves, which totally. is one kind of aspect of things. The other is just that like, we haven't figured out exactly how we're going to deploy this technology. So we're a part of the infrastructure, which is a decision. Once you've made that commitment, then you can start talking about that. But if they're still kind of like, you know, we're not exactly sure how we're going to deploy this. That's like way too early on first. And we're like, listen, when you get closer, We'll come and check on you periodically, but at that point, like there, there's no convincing to be done because they're still figuring out how they want to see the tech. Yeah, that makes total sense. So you mentioned you all work with quite a few Fortune 100 clients. I would assume that 
the bigger the company, the more often this build versus buy comes up, just given that they've actually got way more resources to throw at, at these problems and build stuff themselves. And of course, then the associated cost savings, if they can find any margin there, would be more substantial. Is that fair to say in your experience just based on the folks that, that you all sell to? Well, let, let me take a step back for a second. So there's all sorts of data reports out there, but basically companies that adopt AI, there's a really long McKinsey report out there, are more profitable basically than those who don't, right? So there's a lot of companies interested in figuring out how do I leverage this to either reduce costs or to build some sort of defining product feature that will allow me to generate more revenue. So a lot of companies looking into this. Data scientists and machine learning engineers are very popular resources. <laughs> they are difficult to hire, they're precious. So even in companies like, you know, like the companies that are investing the most in the world, right? Like the Googles and Tencents and Alibabas and, you know, Apples and Microsofts of the world, their data scientist resources are precious. And so what's actually really interesting is that we, we see that way more often than large companies, they recognize they're like, listen, we do not want that, this to be our core competency. We are leaders in technology. Let us lead through that. And that means building the end applications, not trying to build the infrastructure. So yeah. we don't see that wanting to, to sort of bring it in in-house as much. There are some companies, though, that I know started with building and they got they got to a point to where they made the investment in-house, right? So it takes a little bit longer once you've made those kind of sunk costs and commitments, you know, in your application. But at some point in time, the vast trend we see is towards buy versus build because, you know, the, the way that training data is done now, you actually use machine learning and AI to enable it. So it's like, okay, do I want to take my precious resources to enable this kind of like underlying infrastructure or would I rather put it on the end application? It's a really interesting point you make around these companies compete fearlessly for talent and anybody that's tried recruiting for any of these roles knows how hard it is to find good people in these spaces just because everyone's hiring them, you know, a million times over. <laughs> There's just so much excess demand. And so it's a point well taken, you know, that these companies want to keep that high level talent that they had to compete so hard for focused on their most differentiated problems and what's going to make the biggest kind of high leverage impact as opposed to something that they can find someone else to help them with. What about, you know, we touched on this earlier, but it does seem like there's sort of two separate sales that are going on here. One, convincing a prospect to buy versus build in the near term. And this could be, you know, for an immediate need or for an immediate project, there could be some something driving the urgency there. And then also convincing them to build versus buy in the long term. And, you know, you mentioned that you all approach this very much from a, we're looking for long-term partnerships. This is how we try to position it. This problem never goes away in terms of just, you know, the need to keep having accurate data labeling and, and having this constantly being refreshed. Curious if there's anything else you want to touch on there or, or add just around how you all think about this in terms of kind of these two separate sales. And I'm also just curious as well, like, would you sometimes turn down business if, if you think that they're not fully committed to buying in the long-term? Hmm, that's a really good question. Is there kind of a second sale? Yeah, I mean, I think there is, right? What we find is a couple of things. One is AI has been used every, everywhere, right? So if you're, again, one of these gigantic companies, it's not like you've got one data science team, right? You might have like 
hundred different teams working on on products and so there always is kind of like a second sale if you will from a cross sell upsell into different product lines so it's like oh we've established that you're a great partner but now there are many different products you could potentially support so that's kind of you know the the cross sell upsell piece the other component though too of what i'd say the second sale is is really is owning more of that sort of data pipeline and that happens after you've established some level of trust so i'll give you an example you know there, there are just like thousands of terabytes of data right so maybe you're a self-driving car company and you've collected that from driving all around the, the the city or you are a consumer internet company and like that's your business's data, right? But what happens there is that you may not want to, for example, in the self-driving car, you've already annotated tons of data, but you're not doing so well on bicycles, right? Your models and tech bicycles so well. Well, you could have your data science team look through all of your thousands of terabytes of data to find the 10 frames that have bicycles. And to do that, you need data science time right? Precious, precious data science time. Or what you might rather want to do is hand over the pre-processing transformation classification indexing of all that data to a partner. So we are definitely getting pulled way upstream into that data prep part because once there's trust established, it's like, listen, again, this is not exactly a core competency, or I should say it, it's something that we have to do, but we don't necessarily want to do. Now that we know that you can handle yourselves, we'd like for you to go upstream into the data processing. The same thing um, is the case downstream to where it takes data scientists time to identify what should I retrain my model on? What data do I need so that my model doesn't degrade? Well, you can use data science time to, in that example of e-commerce, look across every single product category and say, well, I could sample every single category and spend millions of dollars just retraining, you know, constantly, or I could actually put the responsibility on somebody else to say, hey, you seem to be not doing so well in organic snacks or, you know, electronics, and then put the responsibility on them to do all of the analysis to, to get there. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's an expansion to, to kind of cover the entire pipeline, which I think is one thing that I sort of see as a second sale in addition to the, the cross-sell upsell. From what you're just describing, it sounds like you're not trying to do too much at, at one time in terms of like making them commit to that upfront. Some of these expansion opportunities will happen organically once they're actually up and running and they're a customer and they get to know you better and these cross-sell opportunities present themselves. The question that I really had was, would you turn away business if your team gets a sense, hey, I think they just want to use us for this one project right now and they actually don't seem committed to buy versus build in the long term. I think they may try to build it themselves. Is that still business that, you know, that you'd recommend founders take on or, or how do you think about it? For yeah, that's a really, really great, really great question. We definitely try to tune for ongoing needs. So part of it, I think, is better understanding your ideal customer profile your buyers and doing some like pressure testing and qualification we were talking about up front. So that's definitely something that I think for, for us is more of our, our sweet spots because we think we can maximize adding the most value through a, a broader partnership. But would we it completely, <laughs> that's a good question, would we completely exclude those? Friend? I think some of it, again, depends on that awareness, right? Mm -hmm. They may just be dipping their toes in, have always done it in-house and are just trying to figure out, okay, like if I can be successful in this one effort, then maybe that might convince me I could be successful across all. Right. So kind of a case-by-case -case basis and not being sort of overly strict on the qualifications such that you might be turning away business that once they actually get in the door and realize, okay, this is a much better process. Why don't we expand and keep going? 
Uh, that, I think that's exactly right. And I, we don't, you know, quite see it sort of quite as often just because again, it's kind of like, I'll go back to the cloud computing example. Companies aren't going to necessarily invest in their own data centers and then also have an equivalently large cloud computing budget and structure. Right. Like you kind of usually make your decision to kind of go down one path or the other, where we see clients that need to do both might be because they don't feel like they can transfer their data. Like all things need to happen on premise. And um, so we have solutions we're developing for, you know, like making our platform available, like licensing, but that's really the time where, where I see the hybrid is companies are like, Hey, this is either so proprietary, or I've got PII or some kind of a data. It can only have my team manage that in-house, but that's more of the reason. And typically that's just like a chain of custody, like data and security requirements more so than, you know, like we just prefer to do part of it. Right. Part of it. It's not a philosophical misalignment of, we think this is right. actually a better solution. It's more just like, these are the restrictions given the space that we operate in. So if I were to kind of summarize some of the key points up to this point, just in terms of some of the primary selling points that at least in your all's case that you really lean into to overcome any kind of build versus buy objections and, and to help show why buying makes a lot of sense versus just trying to do it in-house. It sounds like, you know, accuracy, really, really important, focusing on just the fact that this isn't and shouldn't be most companies' core competency. And so their highly recruited talent is better spent on other just higher impact kind of problems that are more unique to their business, less headache overall. You're not having to run an additional office like we were talking about. It's often in another country on the other side of the world. And also even just better value from a total cost perspective when you do take into account things like accuracy and a lot of the sort of admin and overhead costs that are associated with running another office with a whole lot of people in it. That's, that's exactly right. Having been on the other side, one of my first, when I switched to the enterprise side after consulting jobs was to kind of run the PMO, if you will, for all of our applications and vendors. And I mean, the first thing that I used to have everybody go through is like, number one is like, why does anybody outsource, right? Anything, whether it's software or operations of any sorts, you know, it's that either they can do it better, better and more cost efficiently. They've got an expertise that you don't have. It allows you to, to, you know, to, to free up precious, precious resources, in this case, data science resources, and, you know, third speed, right? They already know yeah. what they're doing. And so I used to go through the same sort of criteria. And those are some of the things we try to answer from a sales standpoint as well. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. And what about, like, will you all sometimes leverage references or case studies or anything like that as a deterrent or sort of like a lesson learned that that prospects can leverage if they are trying to kind of think through this and, and they're still earlier in that awareness phase where they're not completely kind of convinced and bought into the buy decision? Is that even, is that a thing? Well, definitely case studies are a huge thing because part of the qualification process in this case is that I think sometimes people think of this kind of work as like, oh, well, you know, it's just like, it's repetitive actions and it's not super, you know, meaningful. It's like, actually it's on the contrary. The more AI gets adopted, the more sophisticated the use cases become, the more the edge cases. And so I can't think of a single retail client who'd be like, oh, you've never done anything in e-commerce and retail. Sure. No, no problem. I'll give you guys a spin. It's actually quite the opposite for, you know, companies that are really trying to drive to higher complexity use cases. It doesn't even matter sort of their level of awareness or sophistication. They do know that context matters. So case studies, not so much like a, whoa, these guys didn't do it this way. And they really right. lost like a billion dollars. <laughs> it's more like case studies from right, a right. standpoint of like, oh, wow, these guys really know what they're doing. They help this company. 
bring their their applications to market quicker. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So there's not like the anti case study, but there are the case studies that show, among other things, why buying versus building makes a lot of sense for folks that are in a similar vertical, so that it can help get over that objection and potentially other kind of tangential objections that they're dealing with. Exactly. Cool. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So what about you know, because to me, the decision of the prospect to build versus buy is quite strategic. So I'm curious how your sales team thinks about ways of strategically leveraging you and, and others on the leadership team when you are trying to convince an important prospect to buy versus build. And you, especially, you know, you mentioned sometimes these can get quite procurement focused, which those aren't always the most strategic of conversations. So I'm just kind of curious, like how, how the team leverages you all, brings them into the sales process. It's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about with our portfolio companies, just as the founder is still trying to you know, be involved in some of the deals, but obviously they've got a business to run. So I'm curious how you all manage that balance. Yeah, no, totally. As much as I love being in front of customers, yeah, like there's there's multiple things that, of course, that need to be balanced. Although I will say it's actually one of my favorite things, favorite parts of the job is solving client problems. So we do it in a couple of ways. I mean, one is I was actually on a call not too long ago with another CEO of a prospect. And so being brought in to kind of help explain not only sort of kind of partnership, how we view the partnership, you know, the investments we make in the investments we're making in our roadmap and our platform to be as efficient and as effective as possible. Absolutely highlight all of those different components. Sometimes trust is a big thing. Some of our competitors, they have to keep the, the client's data. We've taken a very different architectural approach. So sometimes it's really about, you know, kind of being able to continue to convey our, our trust and security parameters. The other component is definitely in the technology. So I would say pretty often, are we pulling in like our head of product or head of R&D and from an advisory kind of council perspective? Because one, they love to be in front of customers too, to understand, you know, hey, is the product we're building and continue to build and evolve upon hitting all of our customers' needs? But yeah, the client's ability to influence that and know that there are, there's a, a set of features out there for them is, is huge. That's very influential. So it sounds like exact alignment, those types of calls quite common and just depending on the prospect and where they're at and that buying process and kind of who the main stakeholders are, that determines obviously who you're bringing in kind of to match that on your side and yeah. to walk them through that. Cool. What about Wendy, any common pitfalls or misconceptions as folks approach the buy versus build convo with their own prospects or customers? You know, you've seen this from every angle. And so just curious, like what kind of common pitfalls or misconceptions that, that you've run into, just whether it's with a prospect, whether it's with, you know, a colleague during your consulting days, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. It's you got my my wheels turning here. I think there are, there are a couple of things. One is the it's proprietary argument. Like, oh, we can't let this sort of go outside of our four walls sort of argument. It's so, you know, proprietary and that and sort of such a value add into our core process, we couldn't possibly do it any other way. Right. And I think the, you know, come back to the cloud computing and data center, like that was an argument for a long time was like, no, we got to build it in-house. Or I think back, I was doing a lot of consulting back in the day of like big data and analytics where, you know, companies are like, oh, we got to build our own massive, awesome data warehouse and like all the trimmings around. And it took a long time to convince companies to say like, you know, there are these like visualization platforms. Now people are like, oh yeah, like why wouldn't I just use like Tableau or something like that and all these other, you know, applications out there. So it's the, it's so proprietary. That's why we need to build ourselves and put all this investment into it is one argument that, that you could bump up against. I think the other is that we can do it better, faster or cheaper. But that is usually one that is really pretty, pretty easily countered. To me, one of the 
sort of underlying themes here that we haven't explicitly called out is the fact that in order to really successfully navigate at a high hit rate, this build versus buy conversation with prospects, you do at the end of the day need somewhat of a complex product, something that's not easily just replicated. There does have to be some real expertise, it seems like just from chatting with you on it. And when I think back to products, you know, I used, I started my career at JP Morgan. Just when I think back to some of the products that we did build in-house, for instance, when I was there, they were building this, their CRM, which, you know, kind of looking back, like, yes, it was annoying because you just wanted to use something right away and you got to go through the process. But I kind of get why they chose a product like that because it's not crazy complicated. You're not trying to label ever evolving AI data or, you know, do something that necessitates real kind of expertise. I could think if it's not a complex product and maybe it is better, faster, cheaper for them to do themselves, like that's when that's sort of a losing battle. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just brought me way back. I was thinking about this, like putting my old CIO hat back on as like some of the decisions that we made. It was like, okay, we've got a really weird product. Do we really want to buy a CPQ, a configure price quote platform, or should we just build our own model? Right. And so, yeah, I mean, that definitely, I think comes into play sometimes when you've got something, you actually be discreet and like buying something off the shelf would take more work and effort, you know, even for it costs more work and effort to sort of integrate into your platforms. Yeah. 100 percent i think the the challenge in some of those things though is that you know you start with something innocuous like oh this will be our just to generate one-time quotes then it turns into a cpq platform and then you're like oh wow it's an internal application that is integrating to salesforce and all these other platforms and oh my gosh we can't actually deliver this new kind of pricing because we don't have enough resources going to rebuild the feature from this custom like cpq thing that we built and so i think it could start small but applications have a way to monolith it's a tricky balance and so i kind of think of it as like either do a really good job of containerizing what it is that you want to build in house make sure it's easily and effectively integratable because i believe fundamentally gone are the days of just gigantic broad systems that do everything sort of okay all sorts of software and applications are being a lot more kind of containerized and specialized. Yep, totally. Exactly. So it's just something important to keep in mind. And I'm really glad you brought that up because we haven't touched on that too much today. Just in terms of the whole other associated cost with building something in-house is the stuff that you're not thinking about. It's support. It's bugs that come up. It's constantly updating it for new use cases. And that's taking those software engineers that are sitting in those expensive chairs in Silicon Valley away from the actual application and, and doing this thing that probably you know should have been dealt with a different way. So yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad we touched on that. Well, Wendy, any final thoughts, tips, or tricks that you want to leave folks with to summarize? Evan, I think that one of the key things is research. Be aware the problems never is sort of simple might think it to be right so in this case of of training it's like oh you know we just need to build this application i just need a little bit here a little bit there it's like really about you know getting to understand the complexity of the space and trying to think a little bit broader in terms of the evaluation process because once you make that commit to invest in for example either build your own platform or build your own operation it is a massive time investment and and suck for exactly the reasons we just talked about and it can very quickly and easily pull you away from your core competency so putting my ceo hat on boy the Things that I don't need to do, we can buy versus build. I'm 100% in favor for. And then it comes all the way down to, you know, our own internal applications and even tech. So yeah, no, I really appreciate that. Accuracy is everything. I'll say that point. And then certainly I wanted to, to say thank you. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me on your awesome. program. Yeah, no, it was, it was my pleasure. I think that's a really good note to end on. So thanks, Wendy, so much for coming on. 
And that's our show. If you like this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to the Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey.